again, good evening. Be opening your Bibles to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 9 actually is where we'll be tonight. Um, For those who are visiting or maybe haven't been able to attend on Sunday nights for the last couple of weeks since we started back, um, I will only be teaching through the uh, month of June, and so that significantly shortened our, uh, our, our subject matter to try to narrow it down to a month's worth of Bible classes together, and didn't really want to do something topical. I wanted to study the text, and so we just picked out a couple of chapters, and I'll explain momentarily briefly why that is the case. We'll walk through some of the things we've already discussed and mentioned, and then we'll add some new information on uh, as the bulk of our class. If you are wondering about our uh, graduating seniors and honoring them, we mentioned this morning, we mentioned for a couple of weeks now, a few weeks now, we'd be honoring them on a Sunday evening, and that Sunday evening will be tonight. Um, We'll go all the way through our regular uh, setup, and after the closing prayer, we'll just ask if you'll uh, be seated or remain seated, however you end up at that closing prayer, and uh, stay around for just a, a, a handful of minutes as we honor them. Uh, I'll say this again uh, throughout the course of, of our honoring them um, and, and, and the days that are coming. I would like for what we're doing tonight to be more. I would like for it to be regular and normal, um, but there's hardly anything right now that's regular and normal. And so just doing something here in the auditorium uh, seemed to fit better with all of the other things that are going on with us. And, and hopefully uh, very, very soon we'll be able to have a lot of these restrictions relaxed and feel more comfortable and have a reception and honor them properly as we've done, I guess, as long as I've been here uh, for our seniors around this time of year. So um, be looking forward to that uh, after class. For that reason, class will be a little bit shorter than normal. Uh, I told Orrin about how long, so he wanted to know if he could just get up and start singing when that time hit. And I told him, no, that if I'm not through, I still want to finish. But at least that, that'll keep me honest, I guess, in class, knowing that I've already given him sort of a a target time for us to be done uh, with our discussion tonight. The book of Matthew. Um, our subject has been discussing Matthew chapters 8 and 9, and uh, we'll get to why that is in just a moment. What, what, what subtitle have we given to this gospel over the last couple of weeks? Okay, it's the royal gospel. Okay? Well, why do we say that? What's the, what, what is peculiar or special about the book of Matthew that, that helps us center on the kingship or lordship of Jesus, maybe as opposed to the book of Mark, book of Luke, or some of those. Okay, it's going to give us his credentials. It's going to, it's going to reveal to us why he's qualified to sit on David's throne. But what are some, what are some contextual words? What are some, some ideas that are, that are found in Matthew more than any other gospel? How about the word kingdom? Remember, the word kingdom is found roughly 160 times in the New Testament and a third of those times in, in the book of Matthew alone. Okay, it refers to Jesus as, as uh, or the, the church as the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God more than any other book of the New Testament where others will call it the church. Matthew calls it the kingdom. You'll also find in the, in the book of Matthew a, a special emphasis on the idea of authority uh, and, and the Davidic line, even going back to the genealogies which we'll mention uh, here in a moment. So as we, as we laid this out, we, we, we said that Matthew is revealing what? The what of Jesus? The resume. The resume of Jesus. I think for the first nine chapters is exactly what he's doing, okay? You've got to stop and remember 
and consider that the book of Matthew wasn't only written so you and I 2,000 years later would have a, a record of Jesus' life. It was written first to a group of people who only had heard of Jesus in sermons. If it's written around the, the end of, uh, of, of the 40s, early 50s in, in the first century, then you have people who've now been introduced to Jesus, who've been taught about Jesus, but they've never been able to do more than, than study prophecy or hear sermons. So Matthew writes so that you can put this book into people's hands and say, okay, here's the life of the one that I've been telling you about. Here's some things that he did. Now, we've claimed that Jesus ascended to David's throne. He was the fulfillment of that promise that David talked about this morning in 2 Samuel 7. He would build the house of God. Why do I know that? Why would I trust him? There are a number of people in the first century, by the way, who came along claiming to be Messiah, who came along claiming to have right to David's throne. What was different about Jesus of Nazareth? Okay, so what you have as you go through these first nine chapters are all of these things. But he mentioned what happens in, in chapter seven. Let's walk through the others first, though. Remember, you have the, the, the genealogy that connects him to David because there must be family connection to, to sit on David's throne. Then you have this, this antagonism between Herod and Jesus. Although Jesus was a baby, Herod saw him as a threat to the throne. You have the, John the immerser being the herald of the king. Uh, not, not every ordinary or individual person had a herald that went before them. Only royalty or dignitaries had that. And Jesus had one who went to prepare the way for him. You had the gifts that were given to royalty in chapter 2. You also then had the Father speaking his approval in, in, in chapter 3. Remember that voice from heaven? If there's nothing else in the first nine chapters, that statement alone makes Jesus qualified to sit on David's throne because Jesus or God spoke in approval of him. You have the, the enemy revealed in, in chapter 4 and Jesus having the power over him in that chapter, being able to defeat him and stand up the temptations. Then you have the king's law in 5 through 7 and it ends with that statement that Buddy just mentioned, that they were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one having authority. And it's from that vantage point of chapter 7, from that, that standpoint, that we move into chapters 8 and 9. And I believe they are the, the, the culmination, the fulfillment of all that, of these credentials being put into one as Jesus exercises his power, his authority. And that's the word that's going to be used over and over and over again in our text in Matthew 8 and 9 in, in the power and the authority and the right that Jesus had over certain things. Okay, so let's, let's review. What was the first of the miracles found in, in Matthew chapter 8? If you have your Bible open there to Matthew 9, what's the first miracle in Matthew 8? The healing of the leper. I hear a lot of voices. I, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm too far away. I can't make out words. The healing of the leper showed that the, the Jesus had the power over despair, right? This man ha had no, uh, no hope, no future because he was a dead man walking. He had a disease that only God can cure. And if God wasn't there... There was no hope, and Jesus came along, touched this man, had compassion on him, and healed him. And this man's state of mind and, and heart went from despair to joy, thanksgiving, as, as he, he was uh, relieved of his difficulties. What's the second miracle that's performed? Okay, the centurion servant, showing the power over distance. In fact, it's one of my favorite stories in the two chapters because the centurion says to him, listen, you don't have to come home with me. I know how authority works. I understand how, how, power, how power operates. All you have to do is speak. Like I speak to my servants, you speak to your servants, and it will be so. Meaning that he understood the physical realm 
and the health of an individual to be in the sphere of Jesus' authority and his power. And all you have to do is speak. Distance wasn't a problem. He will be healed and certainly uh, he was. In fact, when he gets back, he starts to investigate as to when he was healed and it was healed the same hour that Jesus said he was, being able to put the, the, uh, the components together, the story. And then what's the third miracle? Okay, Peter's mother-in-law, power over disease. And we had some things to say uh, relative to that. And then may, maybe the most memorable miracle of, of these, these two chapters is the one about Jesus walking on the water, having power over disaster. You know, calming the storm and, and, and being able to, to alleviate their fears. In fact, there's a, a phrase he's going to use there in that, that he's going to use in our first miracle tonight in chapter 9. Um, different scenario, but same type of storm, at least emotionally, in the minds of hearts. And then what, how, does, how does chapter 8 end? What's the miracle that ends chapter 8? Casting out the demons. Jesus having power over the demonic world. Having power over the demonic forces. Now we've seen his ability to defeat Satan in chapter 4. But here we see his ability to command and to cast out. In fact, as they see Jesus approaching, they're the ones that recognize him and, and, and recognize his authority and ask for permission. Why would they do that? Because they knew of Jesus' power, right? They knew of his authority. We're learning about it as we read Matthew 8. They already knew it. So you have this power over all of these, these uh, situations, these scenarios. And so as we turn our attention to chapter 9, what we want to do tonight is we want to look at, at, at three miracles. Um, but in, our, in our, our slides, in our power, it will only be, it'll only be two. And I'll explain why that is in just a moment. The first one is found... In, in the opening verses of chapter 9, what, what's the story in chapter 9, beginning in verse 1? Anybody? He's going to heal a man who's what? Who's paralyzed, a paralytic. And, and how, is, how, is his friend, how are his friends going to get him to Jesus? Okay, they're they're going to each get on a corner of his bed. They're going to carry him across town. They're going to open up the roof. They're going to drop him down. If there's any story that, that was more fitted for children's Bible class than this story, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. I mean, you can make all kind of crafts and all kind of applications. It's a very neat story, but it's not just a neat story. There's some stuff that goes on in this one that is key to establishing the authority and power of Jesus, of building his resume for us. Now, we've done this each time that, that we've met in here because this is not supposed to be a sermon I know that we're in the auditorium and we're spread out for distancing and other purposes. And so we are far apart. But we've taken time to read together. Uh, and I think that's very, very important for Bible class. And so if someone doesn't mind, read for us the account of the, the paralytic man being healed. It's the first eight verses of chapter 9. Whoever ch chooses to do it, please read loudly. At least enough that we can follow along with where you are. All right, appreciate reading. Here we have power over difficulty. 
Now, obviously, a number of these are disease-related. But the way they come to Jesus are different and varied, right? Jesus goes to Peter's house to find his mother-in-law sick. Jesus doesn't go to this man. This, this man is, and, and some will come to Jesus, like the leper. This man doesn't come to Jesus, not on his own. He's brought. There's one writer who suggested that this was a, a, a miracle um, of, of three things. And we'll use that as sort of our, our gauge of how we study this miracle. It's a miracle of perception, a miracle of pardon, and a miracle of proof. Okay? And we'll explain what, what we mean by each of those as we work through the text and, and look at these, these thoughts. It's very possible for us to stay in these eight verses tonight because I think they're that key. Uh, but we only have one week left and we want to get through all of chapter 9, so we won't do that. But there's a lot of key information uh, in this text. The Bible says that, that, that Jesus came unto his own city. What city was that? Well, no. It was Capernaum. There are a number of cities associated with Jesus' life in, in where he was born, where he was raised, um, where, he would, where he would establish the church, where the church would be established. But Capernaum was the city he adopted. It was a city that became his own. In fact, we mentioned in the first study together that of Matthew's 33 miracles he records, 11 of those are recorded in the city of Capernaum, a third of them. So later on, when, when Jesus pronounces woe on the, the city of Capernaum and the great works that had been done there and they still wouldn't repent, he wasn't exaggerating. They maybe had seen more in concentration of the miracles and power and authority of Jesus than any other city on the earth. And yet some still rejected and didn't obey. So he comes back to the city of Capernaum and he's there in the house. And, and, and why is he there? You may have to find Luke's account and Mark's account. I just go ahead and mention this. He was there because he was teaching. He was there because he was teaching. There are some times when Jesus was crowded because they were bringing people to perform miracles. But on this occasion, they, 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 were, they were gathered around to hear what he had to say. They wanted to know uh, his message. They were, again, reverting back to chapters 5 through 7 and wanted to know the law of this king. And as they're gathered, obviously we know the story, at least most of us, you find that, that, that he was there and they couldn't get to him. He was so crowded. The Bible reveals in verse 2 that they brought a man to Jesus. Sometimes there are phrases and, and thoughts in Scripture that, that we just, and in the English and maybe even in, in the original, we just gloss over. Obviously, they had to bring him, right? If they didn't bring him, Jesus couldn't heal him. You know that word for brought is the same word that's used, and there are various words in the Greek language to mean to bring someone something, to give someone something. But it references the same type of, of reverence as the ones who brought him gifts when the wise men came to visit. It was a presentation that they made. They, they delivered this man to Jesus. It's not like when you take someone to the doctor or drop someone off at the post office or take someone to the grocery store. There was, there was a respect and a reverence and a connection with where they were going that mattered to them. They brought this man as if it were and sacrificed him, laid him at the feet of Jesus or lowered him down to the feet of Jesus. The reason that, that Ryrie calls this a, a miracle of perception is that Jesus saw their faith. In fact, I, I think that he, that he perceived a number of things. I think he perceived the need that this man had, not just for, to be healed but to be saved. He perceived the faith of his friends, and he also perceived the hearts of those who were there listening on that day. It was a miracle of, of perception. And so Jesus saw their faith. Interesting, isn't it, as you read through the miracles, that sometimes Jesus would heal someone because they had faith. Sometimes he would heal someone because someone else had faith. And sometimes he would heal those who didn't even ask for it, who weren't even looking for it. 
and faith had nothing to do with it at all. You know, today when we begin to debate, debate back and forth with those who claim to have the power of healing, they will say, well, you can't see it because you don't have enough faith. Well, this man's faith wasn't, wasn't what was commended on this occasion. It was the faith of his friends. And sometimes there's no faith to commend at all. It's just the power of Jesus that works without any caveat or any response. And so I think it's, it's good for us to go through and point those things out because uh, sometimes we latch on to a passage or the religious world latches on to a passage and then that becomes their excuse or their reasoning for something when really it's not consistent uh, throughout the rest of the stories. In fact, when Jesus saw their faith, what did he say to them? He said, your sins are forgiven. What did he say before that, though? He said, do not be afraid. Take courage. Same words Jesus is going to use back in chapter 8 when he calms the storm when they're afraid and think they're going to die. As far as I know, Jesus is the only person in the New Testament to utter these words recorded in the New Testament. I think that's pretty important and significant. Here's the one, if you're going to look for a king to sit on the throne, you need someone who can calm your fears. You need someone who can answer your troubles, who can deal with your problems. Not someone, as we sometimes think about maybe our politicians today, who dismiss them, who put them on the back burner, who, who serve only at their whim and their wish and not at the whims and wishes of the people that, that have elected them to serve. No, we, we want a king in our kingdom that's going to be attentive to our needs and can offer us security. And so he tells these men, he tells this man, don't be afraid. But what comes next is the most surprising thing about the miracle. It's not the roof being, being taken away. It's not the man being lowered down. It's not faith being a prerequisite to this man being healed. It's this statement of Jesus. And what is that? We have mentioned it. Your sins are forgiven. Now, first of all, that's not why they brought this man. That wasn't even what he was looking for. It certainly wasn't what you would expect to hear, and it's not something that's provable by physical evidence, is it? You can take two people, put them side by side. You're not sure just looking at them, even though we might like to prejudge. You can't tell by looking at them which one is lost and which one's saved. Can you? And so this man's laying there, can't move, and Jesus looks at him and says, your sins are forgiven. Seems kind of hollow and, 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 and dismissive if you're not careful. But Jesus had a purpose for that statement, right? He's, he's engaging in a conflict. He, he's building his resume. Matthew's using this to prove something about Jesus. You know, the Jews had three major issues with Jesus. The first one is right here, that he was a, that he was a, a blasphemer. That's what they thought of him, claiming to be God. A second problem was he made friends with publicans and sinners. And third was that he disregarded the traditions of the elders. Okay, so it starts here. These reactions to Jesus start here. Who do you think you are? In fact, the Bible says that they reason among themselves this way. Now, what's interesting to the reader, because remember, we're reading the event. Matthew writes to people later to trust the resume of Jesus. We don't have to... We don't have to put ourselves in the, in the shoes of those that were there on that day. All we have to do is put our in ourselves in the shoes of those reading the text, and that's what we're doing. Guess what? Jesus proves his deity in the narrative, in the way that Matthew reveals it. What, what about this exchange proves the deity of Jesus? What does verse 4 say? That's right. In fact, sometimes the Bible will say they murmured. Now, when they say that, maybe you think, well, Jesus just had good hearing. You can pick up on it. No, they said this in, them, in themselves. He read their thoughts. And guess what they knew when Jesus answered them according to their thoughts and not according to their words? 
they knew something was different about him, right? They knew something was different. And so there are several things about this text. That's the first one. The first one is that Jesus told them what was in their hearts. Number two, he claimed the deity was based on the fact that he could forgive sins and that he had power over disease. There's a three-pronged attack building the resume of Jesus in this section. He could heal the sick, he could forgive sins, and he could read minds. And since he had claimed one, if, he, if one could be substantiated, guess what? The other, three, the other two could be substantiated in the text. And that's exactly what happens. And so Jesus then really turns his attention away from this man whose sins have been forgiven and really turns his attention back over to this, this, uh, this crowd of people who begin to murmur and complain. And how does he answer them? How does he engage them? Knowing what was in their hearts, what does he ask them? Okay, what's easier? See, what, have you ever actually stopped and considered that question? That's actually a pretty hard question to answer, in my, in my opinion. What's easier, to say, get up and walk or your sins are forgiven? Well, on one level, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because as we mentioned a moment ago, you can't see that, right? And I can stand here right now and say, in two minutes, it will rain in Austin, and as long as you're not on your phones, which nobody's on their phones in, in Bible class and worship, I know that, so it won't matter. No one's on your phones, you wouldn't know if it rained in Austin or not. It's easy for me to say that, right? Much easier for me to say it's going to rain in Austin in five seconds than to say it's going to rain in that parking lot in five seconds. Because you know what you can do? You can peer back out the window and you can look and see whether or not it's raining outside. So on one level, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven because nobody can test that. But in the real true sense of the question... It's actually easier to say, get up and walk. Right? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you go back and read, particularly in the Old Testament, the descriptions of sin, you know, Isaiah 59 is one of those passages we use over and over again to maybe to a point that we, we miss the power of it. Listen, they wanted salvation. They wanted to be heard. God couldn't hear them. And Isaiah says it's not because God's dull of hearing and his ear is, is, short, is, 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 is stopped up or his hand is short. It's that sin has built a wall. Sin is literally there, and it's literally separated you from God. And because of that, it, it actually restricts the power of God in reaching out to you. And so it would be much easier to fix a man physically than fix a man spiritually. You know how I know that? Because it took the cross to fix us spiritually. It only took, took words and, and sometimes even medicine and surgeries to fix us physically. It took more power. So what seemed like he was, what may have seemed like he was saying that it was easier to say your sins are forgiven. In reality, it was much easier to say get up and walk. So guess what that means? If Jesus can do the lesser or the greater, then he can do the lesser in their minds. And if he could do one, he could do the other. That's the point he's making, buddy.
Absolutely. And so the question really isn't, what's harder for me to do? What's easier for me to do? It might be, what's easier for you to accept that I can do? And, and once I can prove what, I can, what, what you've accepted that I can't do, then I'll show you I can do the other thing as well. And so Jesus makes that clear. But notice the number of times in this exchange that they refer to authority. When did God give man the authority to forgive sins? They were in awe of him because of the authority that he had. Matthew's the only one that emphasizes this word in these miracle sections like this. Because he's making a point. Jesus is qualified to sit on David's throne. He has all authority. In fact, he's going to claim that at the end of the book, right? All authority has been given to me. He's, he's, been, he's been moving through, learning obedience. If you go to the book of Hebrews, as, as, he, as he lives on this earth, fulfilling that role as a sacrifice we talked about this morning. And then when he gets through all of that, resurrection comes. Authority is his, and, and there's no question now. We're just in the middle of that journey with him, learning this. And they were in awe of the authority they had. Some take-homes uh, from, this, from this section. If we were just going to do this for one, one class, here's, here would be the rest of what we talk about. I'll just give it to you in, in short order. Number one, Jesus should feel at home in our homes. I think if we're going to really study this text in depth, we, we, should, we, should, we should understand that. Some believe this home was maybe even Peter's home again in Capernaum. This was his home base of operation, and so maybe everybody had gathered there. But, but, but Jesus, people should know Jesus lives where we are. They knew where to find Jesus, right? They crowded around whatever home this was. People should be that way about us. They should know Jesus lives in our home. If you want to have, you have a Bible question, you need compassion, you need understanding, you need help, you need assistance, you need a listening ear, they should know our house is a place they can go for that because Jesus resides there. And these men knew where to take Jesus. Maybe they only followed the crowds. But again, there's something about the, the, the draw that, that, that we should have because Jesus lives in us in our homes. Uh, number two, and we didn't talk a lot about this, but preaching was a priority even in the age of miracles. They weren't gathered there on this day to hear miracles, to watch miracles. They were gathered to hear messages. Let's not get the impression because Jesus did so many miracles that that was the main draw of his early ministry. Remember, before miracles even occurred at an extensive rate, they had already been impressed by his authority, right? Five, seven, five, six, and seven, because he taught them as one having authority. Number three, truth can be hindered by religious people. Truth can be hindered by religious people. In fact, sometimes religious people are the greatest hindrance of truth ever being preached or believed because they've got to hold on it and everybody listens to them. Well, these religious people that came to Jesus were the ones who really misunderstood it all. They were the ones arguing with him. Number four, faith works while criticism sits idle. The faith of these men brought them to Jesus, and yet these men criticized in their hearts on the sideline. And then number five, hard hearts reject even the greatest of evidence. I mean, he had, he had put them on the horns of a dilemma. If he could tell this man to get up and walk, he could tell this man his sins were forgiven, and yet when he walked away, they still didn't believe, no matter the evidence that was given. All right? Any questions or comments about this opening section? All right, let's move on to the next. You have to skip down a few verses. Next, you have the power over death. You have power over death. That is the raising of the ruler's daughter. It takes place in 18 through 26. Now, the section that we've just skipped will be the key section we'll end on, Lord willing, next week in this four-week discussion of Matthew chapters 8 and 9, because I think it brings everything together. It's not a miracle section, but it is 
an important section on respecting and understanding the authority of Jesus. But in, in, the, in the gospel accounts, you have this raising of, of this ruler's daughter. Matthew doesn't give his name. The other writers do. This is a man by the name of Jairus. He is the ruler of the synagogue. He is the chief religious, Jewish religious official in the city of Capernaum. Okay? He, he had power. He, he had respect. Um, he, he was, he was uh, honored by those around him. He was seen as a man with authority. And yet, when he came to a situation he couldn't handle... He asked for Jesus to handle it. Now, you might see there on the screen some different, different ideas that are connected to this, uh, this miracle. First of all, there's submission. The Bible says that he came to Jesus. Look at verse 18. That, that while he was saying these things to them, a synagogue official came and bowed down before him. I think the New King James Version says he worshipped him. Okay? So there's submission. Here's a man who's the chief ruling Jewish official in the city, and he falls at the feet of Jesus in reverence and honor. Guess what he already knows? He already knows the authority and power Jesus has. And now as you're reading this, 30 years after it happened, as, as a new convert or someone considering Christianity, as a Jewish person especially, that will impress you. Here is this synagogue ruler who's bowing down before Jesus. But what's, what I mentioned that there are three miracles in all but only two on the screen because this miracle is interrupted. Does anybody know what interrupts this miracle? So, so this man comes to Jesus very quickly. In verses 18 and 19 it says that, that, that his daughter has died. That a woman comes and touches his garment. Now what it seems like happens, if you can just see this picture, is you have, because Jesus didn't go many places in secret, Okay. A few times the Bible reveals that. Most of the time, there were people around him and sometimes great crowds. And so they, the, the ruler comes and says, my daughter is dead. Will you go and take care of that? And so Jesus begins to move, and people begin to move with him. Almost like an ambulance through rush hour traffic. Okay, People may part a little bit and let you through, but, but travel is going to be slow go. And as he's going to her, he feels someone touch him. And he feels, one version says, virtue leave him. And this woman is healed. That interruption is, is an interesting section of scripture. And we don't have it as a slide all by itself or a miracle all by itself because it's connected to this one. In fact, when I teach Matthew, I usually skip this miracle and come back to it and finish out the, the other miracle. We won't do that tonight just, just for time's sake very, very quickly. Um, Spurgeon called this the, the wayside miracle. Now explain why, why that's the case. The wayside soil was that first soil, right? Remember the, in the parable of the soils in Matthew 13 that seed was thrown on the wayside, the stony, the thorny, and the good ground? You know what the wayside soil actually was? It was actually the road they were walking on. It was, if you walked in a field to sow seed, what you walked on was wayside. It was packed down and it was hard. And when you were throwing seed out to the, the fertile field, sometimes the seed would fall on the road. You, no one actually ever planted on the wayside. Seed just happened to fall there. And by the way, what happened to the seed on the wayside soil? It was, it was, it was, it was, it was stepped on and, and, and then eventually the birds came and ate it because there was nothing to, to give it depth, right? The ground wasn't ready. You just laid it on top of the ground is all you did as you cast it out. It was almost accidental or, or just part of the, the, the deal. It just happened to get there. Well, that's why he called this the wayside miracle. Jesus was looking for this woman. He was on his way to another miracle, right? It was just somebody he happened to come in contact with. I think there's a great point for us. That is that much of the good that we'll do in life will be on the wayside. 
the people that we randomly come in contact with, the people that we randomly meet, the situations that come up from day to day, not necessarily those things that we set out to do. In fact, how many of you have experienced the last three months a change of plans? Right? We don't ever know. But, but have you had opportunities in those three months to teach the gospel to anybody, to influence anybody, to meet new people, to be kind when others weren't? Absolutely, we've all had it. Those are wayside moments. And this woman was, was one of those. She, she's, as one writer described, an extra splash of grace on the way to raise the dead. Her issue is that she had had a hemorrhage of blood for 12 years. She had probably spent all of her resources and all of her time and everything that she had at her disposal in getting rid of this. And yet she hadn't. She would have been considered much like the leper. Unclean and unworthy. In fact, she grabs the hem of his garment. Now, two possible solutions for that, and I know my time is gone, so we'll just keep going. Um, Two possible solutions for her grabbing him his garment. It may mean that she was literally on the ground clutching the the lower extremities of of his garment. That's what some seem to indicate. But they would also call the hem of a Jewish garment the the tassels that rested on the shoulders and and were draped down the back. And did you know that, that, that... the broader the garments and the longer the tassels, the more religious the person. At least that's how the Jews saw it. Remember, Jesus would accuse them of, of, of broadening their borders and of lengthening their tassels. It tells me that there were tassels in that town and borders in that town that were easier to grab than Jesus because Jesus wouldn't have paraded himself as super spiritual. He wouldn't have lengthened his tassels and broadened his garments. So she could have more easily gotten hold of somebody else's tassels. But guess what? What good would it have done her? None, because they couldn't have healed her. It also tells me that there were people in Capernaum that had longer tassels and broader, gar- broader borders of their garments. They, there were people in Capernaum who considered themselves more spiritual than Jesus by their own definition or own, own, own description of what righteousness was. Now, if she actually grabbed the lower extremities of his garment, what does that tell us that she was doing as she approached him? She was bowing down and crawling on her hands and knees. Can you imagine being that desperate for something? Now, I want to think, is that the way that you and I come to the cross? Is that the way we come to the throne in prayer? On our hands and knees, realizing without him we're nothing? I'm not saying it should be the way we think of ourselves all the time. We have reason to hold our head up, be thankful we're a Christian, be thankful for the grace of God, realize that God has done and will do great things through us. But there are times in our lives when we need to be just like this woman. And we'll take any part that we can get. So after this exchange is over, Jesus gets to the house and there's, there's, there's ridicule. There's ridicule because Jesus says, this, this one isn't dead, she's just sleeping. Okay? Please don't, again, taking time just to point out these inconsistencies sometimes with people and their teaching. This does not mean that when we die, we are asleep and our souls are asleep and unconscious at death. Okay? And here's why I say that. I'm not, I don't try to pick a fight with anyone. If Jesus were teaching this, you have to take the first part of the statement. She's not dead. She's asleep. So if she's asleep, literally, she's not dead, literally. Jesus is just saying she's supposed to wake up. There were, there were flute players and singers. You know, people would actually hire professional mourners in the first century 
as funeral processions to mourn and, and lament the passing of family members. It seems like that's already the case. Th- this girl is gone, and they don't expect her to come back, at least no one other than her father, maybe. And Jesus said, she's just asleep. I- I'll get her up. And he raises the dead. Of all the images of the power of Jesus, this is it, friends. This is it. Because none of the rest of it matters. But if he can calm the sea and he can, he can, he can give power to the, to the paralyzed and he can feed the multitudes and he can't raise the dead, he was just here to make life a little bit better. But you know what all of those miracles pointed to? The fact that one of these days, the greatest of all miracles is going to occur to all of us and we're going to take part in the resurrection. And our hearts and minds should long for that day because we serve the one that sits on David's throne that's already shown himself powerful enough to raise the dead. And so at the conclusion of all of those things, the Bible reveals that that they went out and spread the news about him throughout all the land. Isn't that exactly what Matthew wants them to do? Isn't that the reason that he wrote these things? So that the reputation of Jesus could be extended and prolonged and people would know him as the one qualified to sit on David's throne. I look forward to next week and being able to investigate those those last few miracles of chapter 9 and then draw some concluding thoughts from a couple of the narrative sections that we've had to skip over through the process. Well, again, offer the invitation as we've been doing each week here on Sunday night. uh, To those of you who may not know Jesus the way Matthew describes him as Lord and Master. It's because you haven't submitted yourself to him or maybe you haven't lived in submission to him, whatever that, that, that might look like in your life. Become a Christian tonight. I know we've got some other things that are, that are planned and we're going to honor our seniors. We'll delay that. We've had to delay it since, since May. I don't think they'll be upset. We'll do it a little bit longer and, and we'll get the water ready and we'll baptize you into Christ for mission your sins. But looking at the assembly here tonight, most of, of those of age at least have done that. The question is, have we lived as if he is our Lord? Because he's the one who has power over everything, including death. We long for the resurrection. We long for that day if we don't. And we can assist you in making that right. We ask you to come while we stand and sing.